Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of all sorts of different things. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to talk about where tan M&Ms went. What? Yeah, so M&Ms were invented in 1941 as an attempt to get chocolate to GIs that it wouldn't melt as readily as, say, a Hershey bar. The, and the, the M&M, and I didn't know this until this morning, was, stands for Mars and Murray, who are co-creators of the candy. And they got the idea, specifically Mars, I think Frank Mars, Frank or Fred, you should probably know that, but uh, Mars, saw, he, he it's a borrowed idea. He didn't invent candy-coated chocolate. Uh, during the Spanish-American War, Mars came across it as a, a either Spanish or Mexican confection. And so in 1941, they had the colors of brown, yellow, green, red, and violet. And then, I mean, that's obviously not the current M&M colors. The current plain M&M colors are blue, orange, red, yellow, green, and brown. Mm-hmm. So, what happened? In right. Sometime between 1949 and 1954, violet M&Ms were dropped and tan ones were replaced them. Peanut M&Ms were introduced in the early 1950s and they were all tan initially. And this tan color is the most 1970s nicotine stained brown you've ever seen in your life if you haven't had one of these m&ms and they i'll tell you about where they went uh the color i mean it's just it's the color of somebody's station wagon (laughs) it is station wagon tan and presumably it was and i'm just guessing here that they wanted the peanut m&ms to look like a bag of peanuts so they colored them tan. And the tan color was moved over to plain M&M's. So until 1975, the colors for M&M's, plain and peanut, were red, green, yellow, brown, and tan. Which sounds like it's perfection for the 60s and 70s. Just <laughs> it, it would match anybody's dinette set. I'm going to take a brief detour on our tan M&M journey and talk about red M&M's. Uh, in 1976, concern were raised over red food coloring, specifically red number two and red number four, which are derived from amaranth, which is a grain. And there was concern that these were carcinogenic, and they aren't, but it was concern at the time. Now, at the time, M&M's used red number 40, or cochineal, which is derived from bugs and is, to my knowledge, not carcinogenic either so there wasn't really like a technical concern about carcinogens in m&m colors but everyone was so freaked out about this food color that red colored foods became wildly unpopular and so red m&ms were dropped in the u.s and orange ones were introduced really yeah and it was just to suit the food fear of the time 
And it's somewhat similar. It reminds me of, and not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that there's no reason to be concerned about artificial colors versus natural colors, but natural colors, natural color sources have been started to be used in foods to appeal to parents who are trying to have more natural food for their kids. And then there's also a swing back to the artificial colors because people are like, I don't like (laughs) this sort of pale version of (laughs) the neon food I used to eat. And I'll actually talk about that a little later too. So we're at 1976. Red M&Ms are gone. Orange is introduced. So the colors are now brown, yellow, green, orange, and tan. Which sounds like even wow. more perfect. A station wagon palette. It is just Sears, 1976, polyester clothes. Like a Sears catalog. It's just <laughs> the best colors for this era. And so I think that's part of why they didn't introduce different colors than, say, an orange so, in 1987, red M&Ms were reintroduced. The red scare of food coloring <laughs> was over. <laughs> but they also kept orange. So now it was brown, yellow, green, red, orange, tan. And then tan was removed in 1995. And I couldn't find a very solid reason for this. And I didn't have time. I didn't make the time to email M&M Mars candy and ask them. But it seems like it was determined that two browns in a chocolate candy were not needed. And there was actually a contest where you could call a 1-800 number and vote to pick a new color with the options of blue, purple, or pink. And blue won. And here we are. And I really remember this contest because I didn't like that they were getting rid of the tan M&M because who likes change? And then I was very offended that purple didn't win. (laughs) of course and I was I turned nine that year so and I remember it being in conjunction with the Lion King coming out so I don't know if that actually was in conjunction with the Lion King coming out I don't even remember this they're all tied together in my head because I was of an age where the Lion King was very important and M&Ms were very important (laughs) (laughs) and I wonder If purple or pink were ever actually an option, because it would surprise me that they wouldn't pick blue simply because it would make a full rainbow. And purple would be skipping blue and pink would be, I I would assume people would think, oh, that's too feminine for us to add without adding the blue counterpart. Just as a, as a sort of ruthless marketing executive thinking well we gotta have men eat m&ms too so anyway i'm i'm kind of wondering if all the call-ins were just sort of a big marketing ploy to get people to really think about m&ms a lot probably (laughs) and to be like invested in trying new m&ms even though (laughs) even though it's just blue colors so you still can't really get tan m&ms I, you can get different color M&Ms from M&Ms.com. This is not an ad, by the way. I was not provided with any money or M&Ms for this. I, <laughs> I have some in my grocery order upcoming because of this research I was doing. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I will accept any M&Ms that M&Ms wants to give me. So 
you can get cream colored M&Ms, maroon or brown as sort of individual colors, but there is no tan. There's gold or silver, but no tan. You can't get them. And they were they were genuinely pretty ugly, so. Yeah, tan is one of those really foul colors. It is it's just it's the color of a lot of really boring and ugly things. As well as some varieties of poop. <laughs> it's true. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so as a little tangent, I want to talk about another change in junk food that was really sort of formative for me. Because I, I, I think part of why I wanted to talk about where tan M&Ms go is because it's light and fluffy and it has no consequences really. But also because it was it was very impactful for me uh, in terms of like I was of an age where I really cared about candy and I got invested in the it, it's similar to like when Crayola added new colors and they had a contest to name them. Yes. I got really invested in that and I think I was seven years old and so <laughs> it's the type of thing where it was important to me because it was the thing that you know I was of a perfect age to care about it. So I wanted to talk about Trix cereal. Uh, Trix cereal was debuted in 1954 and was supposed to be a sugar-coated version of Kix cereal, which I didn't actually know. And I really liked Kix cereal as a kid. And the original Trix cereal, guess guess what percentage sugar the original Trix cereal was? Uh, 50? Close, 46% sugar. Damn. Early sugar cereals were staggering <laughs> like would knock you over with the amount of sugar they had in them. <laughs> and it makes the um it makes the calvin and Hobbes cereal the chocolate frosted sugar bombs or whatever they're called yeah make a lot of sense because that's kind of what uh, cereal was like when bill watterson was right drawing his cartoons so Trick cereal, fruity flavors, circular shape, much like kicks. In 1991, when I was turning six or five, the cereal changed to fruit shapes from the circular shape. So the yellow would be like banana shaped and the, the grape would be a little bunch of grapes. I feel like this was a really big deal, but I was also five. But it was also, it was the most complicated cereal I'd ever seen that was supposed to, it looked like toys almost. So it was brilliant. Uh, and it's thought that it was probably a decision made because in 1992 they introduced Berry Berry Kicks. And the shape, it was, so it's a round, fruity, sweet cereal. And they didn't want to compete with themselves with tricks. So where did that go? Because for, it, it, from 1991 to 2007, they were fruit shapes. And then in 2007, they reverted back to the round puffs. And they didn't give much of a reason why, but people were incensed. They were angry about the <laughs> loss of these fruit shapes. Remember when we cared about this stuff instead of how long it's going to be till we can leave our houses? Yeah. And and who's got what disease? And uh and who, what we're spreading around and just all this horrible right. stuff. That's part of why I wanted to talk about this because it's good show. It was very consequential when I was five. 
So. <laughs> and then in 2015, I had brought up artificial color. So in 2015, Trix phased out artificial colors. So there were only four puff colors in each box because they couldn't find a suitable replacement for blue and green. And again, people were incensed about these pale, <laughs> round, inferior trick cereal. And so in 2018, they reintroduced the artificial colors. They've kept, I believe they've kept the uh, natural sourced colors as well. But they've also got another option for the six art color artificial color version. And they reintroduced the fruit shapes. So th they gave in. They threw up their hands. They held out for 11 years. And then they were like, well, I guess people really like their fake fruit to be really, really fake, fake fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are my stories about treats in my childhood. Because we weren't, we were only allowed to have sugar cereal when we were, went camping. And we could have M&Ms, you know when we had M&Ms, but it was the changeover was a big deal to me as a child. <laughs> so yeah, that's where they went. Tan M&Ms were discontinued uh, because they were boring and ugly and <laughs> you still can't get them. And then Trix has changed their shape and color because of food fads and they're right back to where we were in 1991. So Trix is the one with the goofy looking bird, right? No, that is Cocoa Puffs. Trix, okay, that's Cocoa Puffs. Trix is the bunny. So silly rabbit tricks are for kids. We're also not sponsored by Trix. I don't really want any free Trix cereal. I, I don't really. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I liked it as a five-year-old, but I don't want my three-year-old to eat it, so. I loved Captain Crunch. Like, if I had the choice, I would have Captain Crunch or I would have Peanut Butter Crunch. And both of them just destroyed the top of your mouth. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. They'd shred it. I... They would. It's like they put razor blades in it. <laughs> they didn't, by the way. No, they didn't. But it was just like but it would tear the, sh the crud out of the top of my mouth. Yeah, it would. I think it did it to everyone. I really wonder if it was just the shape. Yeah. There's not a lot of square cereal. But they were so good. Have you ever had Crackling Oat Bran? No. Oh, man. So it looks like it would be something that very, uh, very health conscious senior citizens would want to eat. Or horses, because it looks like horse treats, too. <laughs> And they're kind of like squared off O's. They're like rectangular O's and they're much bigger than Cheerios. And it's basically just brown sugar and oats. So it is kind of like a horse treat, but it is such a good cereal. You know, now that you say that, I think I have. Yeah. I feel like this is a cereal that my husband told me that he liked. And I was like, what? Yeah, did they... What is this? Well, you didn't choose Cookie Crisp? What? <laughs> no, it's super delicious and sweet. I don't know. If it's like tastes like a cinnamon crunch. Like it tastes like cinnamon toast. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I think you can still buy it. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I don't. You know, maybe it's just at Walmart. It. Maybe it's just maybe it's just where people buy horse treats. 
<laughs> it's now horse treats. Oh, it's got a little coconut in it and some cinnamon and nutmeg. I mean, that sounds really good. Oh, it does sound good. <laughs> now, <laughs> now I want I want horse treat cereal. <laughs> horse treat cereal. Let's see. Oh, there. Oh, we can get it. You can buy it at Target. I mean, uh, you know, if you're lucky, if you can get there. And let's see. I went to, to I went to so I of the grocery stores that I've been able to go to or order from, Target has been the most decimated for food here. Like interesting. Whole yeah, whole like sh- aisles of shelves will be empty. And my husband and I, right after he got out of the hospital, he had to have a soft food diet. And this is right when the pandemic was starting. And we were looking for applesauce and couldn't find any. Like the whole applesauce aisle in Target was just decimated. What an odd food to hoard. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. But people got to feed their kids and maybe they're like, well, applesauce is a good snack. That's true. And it's, it's... I mean, we don't preserve fruit much except in jams and jellies. Like, uh, my husband was shopping and he looked at the canned fruit and the only thing that was left was pineapple rings. And I love canned pineapple. I think it's great. So I was like, yeah, grab some. (laughs) It's great. But it's, you know, no oranges, no fruit cocktail. Right. It, It was unbelievable. I'd never... I've never seen this store like that before. And even like the frozen fruit was pretty decimated. Yeah. Yeah. Because people got to feed their kids. They're not going to be at school all day. I get it. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk about where, where the pin boys go. Who are the pin boys? You've never heard of this term? Oh, it's the manual pin setters for bowling lanes. Yeah. There were actual humans that used to do this task. And when bowling first became popular in this country in the late 1800s, everything was manual. And it was mostly done by little little boys, like nine-year-old little boys did this. (laughs) Because the little girls were making thread and getting their fingers mangled. So the boys have to do something dangerous. Exactly. So bowling, we found evidence of bowling being around in some shape or form uh, since uh, 3000 BC. Wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So I guess they found an Egyptian tomb with a child buried in it, like off to the side. And there was like what looked pretty close to bowling balls and pins they were pretty sure that it was like a bowling like game and pretty much all most cultures in the world have some form of a bowling like game and all of these have had an effect on the game that eventually came over to the u.s which is what we know as bowling today cool yeah so the the pin boys though these little kids there were little kids and later um, they're probably teenagers but in the first when the bowling became standardized around 1840 and then bowling alleys kind of cropped up everywhere and it would pretty much be this thin wooden lane there would be these pins and they usually had like bumpers around them there would be like these little nails or spikes that come out where the pins were supposed to be. 
and there was this long kind of gutter, just like there is now, but it would have like a large hill and then it would go up to the top so that the pin boy could put it on this hill and then it would take that hill and then roll, roll back down to the bowler. So the kids, uh, the pin boys were up pretty late at night and at the time bowling alleys were pretty bar-like. There was a lot of drinking, the places were really smoky, if you can imagine how lovely, belligerent, drunk people bowling can be, yelling at kids that they're in the way, you know. <laughs> the kids oh, no. had to had to dodge flying pins and balls. And so there is a actual uh, antique bowling lane. I think it was in Maryland. And th- th- there were not children <laughs> manning these <laughs> lanes anymore. They were actually adults. But you could see how it worked. The, the guys that were in this manual bowling lane would be perched like kind of on top of like this little ledge above the bowling lanes and each person, each pin boy got like two lanes to watch out for. And you could see him like he would have to like kind of lean off to the side to avoid flying balls and pins at him. And then he would jump down really quickly, gather up all the pins and like replace the ones that were still standing and put the other ones off to the side and doing this over and over and over again. Just, it's unbelievable. And I guess the pins themselves weighed at least a couple pounds and then the balls could be up to like 10. So these kids were lifting these things <laughs> over and over. They were putting the pins down. And as you can imagine, child welfare advocates were not fans of this. Because the kids were in these smoky bowling lanes. They had to dodge these flying pins. People were yelling at them. But I did read some accounts where the pin boys uh, were pretty snarky. So they would get the last <laughs> laugh. You know, if you didn't treat him right and you got a snarky pin boy, he could take his sweet ass time getting your ball back to you and putting the pins back. So, I mean, they did get the last laugh eventually. The pin boys were paid per game, and it came out to about $2 per week. And this was in 1910, about 1910, 1914 is when the article I read was about. And so I went to a really cool calculator to see how much money that was. I mean, that's not chump change. It was $50 in 1910 money. So it would be it would be the equivalent of wow. like $50. $50 in our money and he made about $2 a week. So that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty good. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if nine. you're nine, and you know, of that course, is really good. Uh, child, child labor. A lot of it was because they, they were just part of the family. They were part of the working family. And so they brought in stuff to support the family, just like everyone else. And of course they had to work in terrible conditions and were taken advantage of. But if you look at it from the scope of, you know, people just trying to survive, you can see that, you know, that's that's why this happened. But so after the Second World War and the Depression, uh, pin boys were more often teenagers. So this is good. They used semi-automatic pin racks. So semi-automatic pin racks had come around. And so the teenagers, the teenage boys would basically pick up the pins, put them in these racks with holes in them. And there was a manual there was a manual handle and they would push it down. And when they pushed it down, it would push all the pins back onto the lane. 
and then they would also return the ball to the person. So these people were still having to watch out for all kinds of hazards and they had to fit in tight spaces, but they were a little bit more protected than these poor kids in the earlier stages of the game. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so about 1946, 1940s, after the Second World War, um, people were realizing how hard it was to manage teenagers, <laughs> as one does. And so uh, a bowling lane owner was complaining that he was having troubles with keeping his pin boys and he would just love something that was a little more automatic so that he didn't have to rely on pin boy labor so much. So he was talking to his friend Gottfried Schmidt. Gottfried Schmidt, with the help of another engineer, they got together and they started working on what we now know as the automatic pin setter. So Gottfried uh, was working in his in his shed. It was actually a turkey shed, so there were turkeys in there with him. I don't know if he was bowling with the turkeys or not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I mean, it would add a, a little spice to the game. He, his experiments <laughs> used flower pots, uh, suction cups, and lampshades to see if he could like pick up these balls, put them back in, and do it automatically. So eventually, in 1946, he got hooked up with what is now known as AMF. There, there's Brunswick and AMF. It seems to be two opposing forces in the bowling, the bowling world. So, and AMF uh, wanted two sample machines that were unveiled in a tournament in Buffalo, New York. So they, everyone was like, "Oh my God, this is amazing! No more pin boys." So it wasn't until 1951 in Mount Clemens, Michigan, that the first bowling alley became mm -hmm. pinboyless. So, and, and after that, uh, the rest of the country eventually followed suit. However, for nostalgia reasons, there are a couple manual lanes, like the ones I, one I talked about, which was pretty much an antique one. I think you go there just for the thrills. And there's actually Southport lanes in Chicago has the old semi-auto pin setters where there's actually someone back there putting the, the pins in and doing the handle. But as of 1951, um, most of the ones in the country and the pretty awesome ones that you see nowadays are all automatic. And they're beautiful and they, they tend to work well. But of course, when they break... It's all machine work that you have to do. So you have to pretty be pretty good with machines, but that's better than kids and teenagers being broken. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean if they break exactly. they go to the, <laughs> the doctor. <laughs> yeah, so where did they go? Um, child labor crackdowns in the thirties uh kind of got rid of the kids. Uh the the Great Depre Depression happened, um, and then the invention of the automatic pin setter pretty much ruled out even having to hire teenagers for your bowling alley for manual pin setting. The machines took their gerbs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is kind of a forewarning, isn't it, about eliminating a field through automation? Yeah. 
No, I'm not going to complain the new, about it. I've seen um, videos on YouTube, and there's a lot of fun YouTube videos if you like just watching how machines work, of showing you how the automatic pin setter works, and it's actually pretty cool. The there's like a sweep wagon that comes out and it sweeps all, all the pins, and then there's a pin elevator. And it takes the pins up and puts them in the pin setter and places them back down. And it's just really cool to watch. I totally suggest it if that's something that interests anyone. It is fun. Yeah, to watch. and it's kind and of when you're on the other side of the lane, you have no idea. Like you're you have no idea the complicated machinery that is back there. God, I just feel like it must have been so yeah loud for these for these children. And just what kind of hearing? Yeah, I mean, just from watching the video of adults, like actual adults doing this job that little little boys used to do, it was just like, and these grown men were like dodging balls and just like, like turning to the side. So these, you know, because people are crazy with their bowling balls. They're like, I'm going to throw it as hard as I possibly can. So it smacks the balls and the balls oh, yeah. fly. Well, imagine you're in a non-enclosed space, really. You're just in like kind of a, a lane and you're sitting above it and <laughs> you've got to dodge everything and then go down and like set everything back up again. It's Well, and I'm sure that the construction standards weren't the same everywhere. So what, you know, the gutter could just be pointed right at your ankles or there's no gutter or there's like, a, you know, all sorts of <laughs> problems. And then, of course, there's the customer service aspect of of drunks at the bowling alley. (laughs) With children. And what were they giving the kids because they thought it was funny, you know? And how many of those kids smoked? All of them. I don't know. (laughs) Passively or actively, they sure did. Yeah. So I read a couple of articles that really claim that the automatic pin setter, because it made lanes less shady um, and a little more fancy, the fancier lanes had the auto pin setters and they were faster, that it really kind of made all of bowling alleys kind of come up. And Mm -hmm. that's when... Women Women started playing the game more. There were women leagues. There were little kids playing the game. And that's, you know, the automatic pin setter maybe took bowling from like a CD bar pastime to a family fun activity, which is an interesting sociological change. That is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's almost a, such a kind of an equalizer, just women having access to a male space in a way that was not necessarily considered revolutionary is or like had to be revolutionary to happen. Exactly. I'm sure there I'm sure there were bowling alleys where all types of folks were not welcome. But Oh, absolutely. And a lot of the the manual pin setters um after the war were African American people. It was very common mm-hmm. for them to be African American. So yeah. The machines took their gerbs. <laughs> I think of that episode, not every time I hear a rooster's crow, but a lot of I know times. that was so funny. It's just um, eventually just sounds like a rooster. <laughs> 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 
We're referring to a South Park episode about the bizarre racism of assuming that people from other countries come here to take jobs. Yes. So just so everyone knows what on earth we're crowing about. <laughs> All right, cool. Absolutely. I have I don't know that I have ever spent more than like fifteen seconds thinking about pinboys in my life. So I'm really actually grateful that you'd covered this because I never would have looked into it so and I didn't I don't have to no you now know mm-hmm. and I read an article that was an old uh archived sports illustrated of all things issue about uh it was an older man talking about he him being a pin boy like he was actually a pin boy and so his cool. article was was pretty funny I I found it uh- interesting I bet it was. I bet he was a character. <laughs> Do you, did he say what he did after he was a pinball? No, he didn't. Uh, my impression was that he was a writer and an editor oh. for Sports Illustrated, but I may be making that up after having read it. I have no idea. It would make some sense. He would, you know, you'd be involved in the nitty gritty of sports early on. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there was reporting about bowling leagues prior to the advent of automatic pin setters. So, I don't know. Maybe he got in with, with the the local rag and it was uh, it was off from there. And FYI, there's a band called Pin Boys and that makes searching on YouTube very confusing. Ah. So put Pin Boys Bowling <laughs> is my suggestion. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a good suggestion. Uh, you can find us at whereedoesitpodcast.com. We have a Patreon. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure I have it linked right this second on our website, you, but it's in the do. show notes. Okay, great. Courtesy of Sarah, because I didn't do this. So <laughs> thank you, Sarah. <laughs> and it's in the show notes. If you feel like uh, slinging us a little money once a month to uh, pay our hosting fees, you certainly don't have to. And uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, although I haven't done anything with Pinterest in a minute. Have you? Uh, I look at it. Cool. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> that's one of the whole points of Pinterest, so that's perfect. It's a look and peepers kind of thing. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. Yes.